Caleb, son of Jephunneh. Can Barbara that would be great.
Um, what the article is about, basically, it, it basically just saying um, Australians have absolutely no idea what their wealth status is. Um, it's not saying um, it's not having a go. It's just saying interviewing Australians, they literally are clueless about where they really fit in relation to other people economically. How much money we have. Um, lots of very very rich Australians think they're actually middle class. Lots of really, really rich Australians actually think they should receive government handouts because they're actually not very rich at all and they should get subsidised and helped and all the rest of it. Um, it's an article about perspective. Let me put the article about perspective in perspective. Um, <laughs> Australia is one of the wealthiest societies in the history of the world. It just is. Um, even today, so today people are richer today because we've got better medicine, we've got a better technology, all sorts of stuff that makes us wealthier, better off in real terms than people in the past. Australia... Uh, we're insanely rich. If you earn $30,000 a year, you are in the top 7% of the richest people in the world on 30 grand a year. If you are in our new start allowance, people who don't have a job at the moment, uh, you will earn more than 85% more than of the world's population without working. That's how insanely rich we are in Australia. You might not think it's much money, but in real terms, 85% of the population of the world wish they could work really, really hard to earn our new start allowance. That's how incredibly blessed we are in Australia. Now back to the article, because you've got to have that perspective coming to it. So basically, you live in the eastern suburbs of planet Earth. Okay? Got the picture? That's, that's what Australia is, um, regardless of what your income is. Um, so the research is showing that many people earning $150,000 a year feel like they're poor. Um, lots of people interviewed. They're interviewing people and they all feel like they're poor. At least they're not rich. Um, people with household incomes of $300,000 a year have a deep sense of dissatisfaction and even a lot of them just feel like they're entitled to government help on $300,000 household income. Uh, it's very common. Uh, a $200,000 a year household income puts you in the top 5% of Australia. That's the top 5% of one of the wealthiest societies in the history of the world. And yet most people in that bracket see themselves as middle class. They keep saying, we're not rich. We're not rich. And some would say, uh, we live in uncertain economic times, so you've got to give us a break here. But in fact, Australia has had more growth in the last 15 years than its history. Uh, in terms of every, every bracket of income has increased hugely over the last 15 years, is what they're saying. That's, that's the truth of what's actually happened. And most people in our astonishingly wealthy country just don't see themselves as wealthy. Now, I'm actually don't want to talk about money today, because um, that's all a symptom of something that I do want to talk about. Um, it's a deeper problem. Underlying all of that is just the deep feeling of dissatisfaction with life, discontentment. Uh, we're dissatisfied with our work. We're dissatisfied with what it produces. We're dissatisfied with the leisure it affords us. We're dissatisfied with our experience of rest and enjoying life. We're just dissatisfied with life as a society. Now, human beings, I think, they, we just have a deep desire for rest, right? Um, we want to do good, rewarding work. And we want our good, rewarding work to lead to having money, having enjoyment, being able to have a rest and enjoy life for a while. We want to enjoy the fruit of the hard work. That's how the Bible talks about it. Rest, sorry, rest comes from working hard. And when work is working the way it should, you get to rest afterwards. You get to enjoy life. You get to enjoy the fruits of your labour. And so in our society, we work hard to produce lifestyles that afford the level of rest that we, and leisure that we want. So insert all the stereotype things here. You know, houses, cars, any number of overpriced hobbies. Um, insert your one here. Uh, and yet the norm in our insanely rich society is we're deeply dissatisfied. And people say, I'm not rich, I'm not content with how life is. We read in the Bible, God wants us to be happy. Uh, 
So in Jesus, God offers rest we can't get ourselves. And he invites us to journey there to receive it, to journey to him to receive it. That's what we're going to look at today. Because we, if Australians can't find rest in our work, then nobody can. Uh, we're, we're, we're top of the ladder. We're the eastern suburbs of planet Earth. Let me tell you about what we've been looking at in this series so far. Um, so far we've been talking about living the new life of Jesus. That's what the whole series is about. How that starts off is, um, the Bible talks about mankind as living in a state of death. Now we talked about this three weeks ago. Those of you who were here, well, you've forgotten it now. And those of you who weren't here, you don't know it yet. So I'm going to tell it again. Um, we live in a state of death. That means we're under God's judgment. Each Humankind by nature is alienated from God, not in right relationship with God. And dominated by sin. So just it characterises our lives through and through. We live our own way. Bad motivations lead to wrong actions, lead to broken relationships and a broken world, and that's the world we live in. And one symptom of that is we can't find rest and satisfaction. So the Bible's verdict is just, we can't do that ourselves. We're unable to live God's way. We're unable to fix the issue and bring about peace with God to bring about real rest and satisfaction. And so the Lord Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. He covered my sins, your sins. He rose from the dead for the first time in history. Death lost. A man beat death. And that same man who rose from the dead then is alive now. And so he can offer eternal life to all who trust in him. And that's the only pathway. By means of Jesus' death and resurrection, trusting in him to start a new life with God. Uh, What that's about is... I look to Jesus and I see him. He died for my sin and I trust in him and I know I'm forgiven and free from judgment. I know I can stand before God on judgment day. And not because I'm a good person. I'm not a good person. I've done lots of wrong things. Um, but I can know with assurance, even though I've done lots of wrong things, that he will accept me into his kingdom. Because I'm looking to Jesus who has given me full forgiveness and freed me from judgment. And he's given me his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in Christians when they become Christians so that we no longer enslave the sin and we can start living God's way now. It's absolutely crucial to understand that. So when we talk about living the new life of Jesus, what we're talking about is what God starts in this by the power of his Holy Spirit. He marks us out as believers as God's personal property and he equips us to live his way. Now, we spent three weeks talking about what that looks like. Um, we should really get that brochure out. If we haven't got brochures out today, Stu, would you be able to help me out with that? In fact, I don't think I, I have one. Um, some of, many of you will know what I'm talking about. We have a brochure, which is basically our vision at church, um, which Stuart is going to finally hand out, and I have one in my Bible, I think. And if you open that in the middle, when you get one, oh, look at that. I don't even have one, Stuart. I'll give you one second. Get talking. Yes, that's Thank you. So, folks, if you open up to the, the middle of the brochure, and you'll notice on the right-hand side there, it says, Living New Life for Jesus. Um, and so we've been following down. These are characteristics of what it looks like to live this new life in the Spirit. How, what does it look like as we have the Holy Spirit and we start to live God's way together? Um, we're talking about disciples who are faithful. Now, faithful is about being an apprentice to Jesus, um, learning the way of Jesus. The way Jesus lived, the way he loved other people, the way he didn't sin, the way he strived with every fibre of his being to serve God and serve other people. The goal of people who are living new life in the Spirit is that they be faithful disciples, that they grow more like Jesus uh, and they look more and more like him each day, each week, each year. We've been talking about adventurous disciples, the next top one down. Because see, what happens is when you join Jesus' side and you have 
full pr promise of assured part in his kingdom. You actually don't need to worry about this life anymore because this life, which is very short, in comparison to eternal eternity especially, it's just, it's not where it's at for us anymore. It's not where our hope is. I'm going to live forever in God's kingdom. That means what I have now isn't a great stress to me. I can be assured of eternal life. And so I'm free to live courageously to serve Jesus with my time, talents and treasure. Disciples of Jesus are compassionate. That is, we hear Jesus call love. We just heard it with the kids, didn't we? Um, we perceive great need around us. And where we see great need, we want to help people. Because we love them. Because Jesus loved them and we want to imitate his love for them and join in his love for them. And then we get to the brochure and we come to Enduring, and that's the one nobody knows what to do with. Um, I've talked to lots of people about this. So at the bottom of your page there, you still Enduring. Um, and I've noticed a lot of people see that and they're not really sure what to do with it. It's the most difficult one, I think, for, for many of us. Um, what's that about? Um, the Bible often presents the Christian life as a journey or a race. Um, you start somewhere, you end somewhere, and the whole point of the journey is to get to the end of it. Uh, you might have heard saying, kind of like, it's not the destination that matters, it's the journey that counts. Um, that's nonsense with Christianity, right? by the way. The journey matters, but getting there is what makes the journey matters. The only thing that really matters in the end is getting there, getting to the end of the race. And so, in our, bro in our brochure, we talk about enduring, running to win the prize. It's talking about continuing to be a Christian until we get to the kingdom of God. Let me tell you my testimony, and you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm... Oh, just come back to the last slide. So you can see here, here's the process of people becoming Christians. This goes very slow. Great. Okay, we're going to put that, uh, that stuff we saw before just shrunk into a corner. Now, I was converted and started New Life with Jesus in 1985. Don't um, try and calculate how old I am. I'm 32 and I was four and a half when I was converted. Um, now, what happened then? Um, is I learned two things. I learned one thing about myself and I learned one thing about Jesus. Um, I was asking questions about why Jesus died um, and the answers I got, had, the one thing I learned about myself, which I already knew, I just had to admit, um, Matt, you do stuff wrong, you're a sinner. I know that. It seems, my parents told me, it seemed pretty dumb to tell my parents that I, that wasn't the case because I you know, live in the same house. Um, <laughs> I learned something about myself. I'm a, I'm a sinner. And I knew God knew me and my heart better than, better than my parents did. And so it seemed pretty dumb to deny that. I learned something about Jesus too. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross because you're a sinner and he loves you and he wants to forgive you. And he offers you forgiveness and, and a free entry into his kingdom. And so I thought that was a pretty good offer, too good to refuse. And so I accepted Jesus then and there and I've never regretted it. It's It's wonderful. So I started a new life with Jesus. The Holy Spirit came to my heart and enabled me to see Jesus clearly, to trust him, and the Holy Spirit would be my companion for the journey of the rest of my life. Now, and in the future. Now, here's the big question. Was I saved in 1985? Just think about it for a sec. Was I saved in 1985? There's two answers to the question, and both of them are right. You've got to have both of them. There's a sense in which that's yes, and there's a sense in which that's no. Yes, I was saved in 1985. Um, not in every sense of the Bible uses the word, but I was saved in that. I was adopted into God's family. I'm in right relationship with God now. I know now, with complete assurance, that I can stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus, and he'll say, Matthew Payne, you are forgiven. Welcome to my kingdom. But on the other hand, I'm not saved yet. Because... 
the kingdom of God is at the end of time and I'm not there yet. I haven't experienced it yet. It's in my future. One day I will be saved fully. That'll be the day I stand before God. He looks me in the eye and says, you're with me. Welcome to my kingdom. In case you haven't noticed, I'm not resurrected yet. The body I'm in right now isn't expected to last for eternity. God's got something better in store with, with, with that. He's, got, he's taking care of that. But I haven't experienced that. I haven't been saved from my body of sin and death yet. And so I'm waiting. I'm looking forward, like we said in the creed, I look forward to the resurrection and the life of the world to come. I look forward to the fullness of my salvation in the future. And so, 1985, converted, in the future, how do I get there? I endure. The finish line, the end of the race is at the end. That's when I'll be saved from judgment finally. That's when I'll be raised from the dead entirely to eternal life. That's when Jesus will personally welcome me into his kingdom. I'm called to live each day by faith in Jesus, same as I started. Now, this is really important. Part of the definition of what makes a Christian is that they keep being a Christian firm to the end. Part of the definition of what makes a Christian is that they keep being a Christian firm to the end. I want to show you it in the Bible. Have Hebrews 3 open, and it says it twice in a very short amount of space. It says it in lots of places in the Bible, um, but I just want to show you it here. It's got the idea where we've got assurance now, but we're also waiting to be saved in the future. So have a look at verse, um, verse 6 of chapter 3 on page 206. Um, what it says is, Christ is faithful over, oh, as a son over God's household, and we are his house, so we belong to Jesus, if indeed we hold firmly in our confidence and the hope in which we glory. See that confidence? I've got confidence, I'm right with God, and I've got to hold on to that firm to the end. That's what it says. Come down to verse 14. Same thing. It says, We've come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. I had some very basic original convictions in 1985. I learned something about myself and I learned something about Jesus and I still believe both of them. I believe I'm a great sinner. I believe that Jesus is the greatest saviour. I've got to hold on to that firm to the end. That means we're assured of salvation, but we're not lax about continuing in salvation. In fact, because you're confident in your salvation, you continue trusting in Jesus firm to the end. I want you to imagine for a sec that I hand you a concert ticket. This is a concert ticket. Um, I'm on my way to the concert. Now, I am assured that when I get to the door, I'll hand them the ticket and they'll let me in and I'm going to listen to the music. Now, I'm on the ticket, I'm on the journey, on the way. Um, I'm not enjoying the music yet. Am I in the concert yet? No, I've got assurance. But I've got to continue the journey. Now, if on the way I decide to burn my ticket, I decide to chuck it in the gutter, uh, I will not get into the concert. It's kind of like that with trusting in Jesus. We're called to continue in Christ, firm to the end. I'm assured that I'm right with God. Jesus' death and resurrection has given me every ticket I need to get into his kingdom. And so I journey to the promised land, trusting in Jesus, but if I give up on Jesus, if I burn my ticket to the promised land, then I'm not going to get in. And so because I'm confident that I have a real ticket, it's really going to let me in. I hold on to it with everything i got. I, as, as God enables me, I keep trusting Jesus firm to the end. Because part of the definition of what it means to go to a concert is that you go to the concert. And the definition of being a Christian is you be a Christian, you finish the journey, you get to the end of the journey. One of the, um, one of the saddest testimonies I've ever heard... Um, I read it, didn't hear it, um, was a woman talking about her daughter and, and she said, um, and my daughter, she, it was sad because her daughter had become a prostitute, but that wasn't the saddest thing. 
Um, she said, my, my daughter is a prostitute, it's terrible and wrong, um, and she doesn't care about Jesus anymore. But praise God, she prayed a prayer when she was a little girl, and she's completely assured of her salvation now, regardless of what she does. Um, and that's heavy, but that's where the weight of it is. That's precisely the opposite of the way it works. There's only two acceptable ways for the journey to end. That's for me to die trusting in Jesus, or for Jesus to come back and claim me in the meantime. Giving up on the truthfulness of Jesus' promises to me along the way is just not an option. I want to show you what the Apostle Paul talks about like this. Apostle Paul is a follower of Jesus who told lots of other people about Jesus too. Let's have a look at a couple of things he said about running the race. He got converted and he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And so he encouraged other people to do the same. So in Colossians 2, he's talking to the church in Colossae. And he says, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. He's urging them, keep going as Christians, you've got to do it. There was a church in Galatia that was starting to turn away from Jesus. And so he wrote this kind of thing to them. You guys were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Can't you see you're on the journey to the finish line? The salvation's at the finish line. You've got to get there to get the salvation. Who cut in and is attempting you to stop doing that? I think it's most powerful when he pulls at the end of his life from 2 Timothy 4. He's soon to be executed. And he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I'm about to die and I'm trusting in Jesus. Uh, now is there, in, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul knows that there's only two options. He dies or the Lord Jesus returns to claim him. Giving up isn't an option. And so we heard uh, a very sad story from Israel's history in our first reading. It's an awful event. It's about a large group of people who gave up on the truthfulness of God's promises um, and didn't get there on the journey. Uh, it's the most, one of the most tragic events in Israel's history. And you might have noticed we had two Bible readings. The second one from Hebrews is reflecting on that event. But back, so the first one we read was sort of a historical narrative telling the story about what happened. Um, and Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about that event and quoting it and saying, you need to endure. Don't do the same thing. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Have a look, come, come with me to chapter 3, verse 7. It's, it's a really complicated part of the Bible. You can understand it, it just takes a little bit of work. Um, have a look at chapter 3, verse 7. Um, and there's more involved than just the two bits of the Bible. It says, So as the Holy Spirit says, and it starts quoting something, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So it's talking about that event. But it's actually quoting a song. And so if you have a look at the screen, um, Hebrews 3 to 4 is telling, talking to people in his day, you need to trust in Jesus. And it quotes a song. Um, Psalm 95 is what it's quoting. Um, and that was written by King David in the Promised Land. King David is saying to his, this isn't the rebellion in the wilderness. This is King David talking about another thing before him. And so King David's written a song about what happened in the wilderness in Numbers 13 and 14, where Israel tested God, quarreled with God, and then rebelled and failed to enter God's rest. So, if you're wondering what's so confusing, it's a song about a historical event. It's like a you know, movie where there's flashbacks inside flashbacks. It's quite, you know, it gets confusing, but that's basically what's going on. So, we're reading a song that is about what happened way back in Numbers 13 and 14. Um, let me just tell you the story and get the point. 
Uh, this is that part of the world. There's Sinai Peninsula, there's Egypt, there's Canaan. Canaan is the promised land, the land that God promised to his people. Um, in 1500 BC, Egypt is the most powerful nation in the world. Um, the way people would say it is, uh, our gods are better than your gods, uh, because we're the most powerful nation, we have the most powerful gods, that's how it works. Um, what they really mean is, um, our army is invincible. In real terms, that, that's what it means. Who can defeat the gods of the Egyptians? Who can defeat their armies? And so here's the Egyptian nation with its invincible gods and its invincible army, and the God who made the universe wants to introduce him to the self of the world, and he says, you know what? The slaves of Egypt, I'm going to turn into a nation better than them. And I'm not going to deal with any armies. And so he goes and gets this reclusive shepherd called Moses out of the wilderness. He says, I want you to go up to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and tell him, the God who made the world is taking your slaves away. Just let them go now. Um, and he's going to make them into a big nation better than yours. Um, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, doesn't think much of that, refuses. Um, but after God proving himself with a series of plagues, eventually gives up and... The Egyptians are so demoralised at the end, their slaves plundered them before leaving. God just so demoralises the most powerful nation in the world that they, they just get away. They are trapped at a sea because eventually Pharaoh goes, we can't do without a slave, we've got to go get them back. And he sends his entire army, the most powerful army in the world, to go get them, and they're trapped against the sea, and Israel is demoralised and defeated and feels like, well, this is all the end of it. Moses gets up at God's command, parts the sea, Israel walks through it, and the sea comes down on the heads of the Egyptian army and destroys it. This is the real deal, God. The gods of Egypt are nothing. The army of Egypt is nothing. Israel didn't get the idea, though. They kept travelling. And there's a place called Massa and Meribah, which I think they named after this event, because they got to a point, and they're whinging the whole way along. God's not looking after us. He just killed the biggest army in the world to look after you for crying out loud, and they just won't trust him. And they're going, oh, we're going to die in the desert. We should go back and be slaves again. Let's go see if Pharaoh will have his back. And they quarreled and they argued. And Massa means uh, testing and Meribah means quarreling because it was a place where they tested God and they quarreled with each other. And they thought about going back and giving up on God. And God just kept sustaining them. He gave them water and he led them on. Led them to Mount Sinai where they met him. And this is where Moses gave the Ten Commandments to his people. He introduced himself to Israel, his people, and said, you are going to be my people. And I'm going to introduce me to the whole world through you. And he promised he'd journey with them. Go on the journey with them. What's the word? To the promised land of rest. Where he'd give them rest from their enemies. He'd give them every good thing in this life. So they could testify to his goodness to the whole world. And so they started on the journey. And they got to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Which is on the edge of Canaan. The edge of the promised land. And that's where a second reading got picked up. They're at the edge of Canaan. Moses sends spies into the land to see what it's like and report back. Let's have a look at it. Numbers chapter 13. You can keep a finger in Hebrews 3 if you like. It's probably, you know, it's a good that. What? I'm going to put my brochure in there. But page 146 of your Q Bibles um, has the Numbers 13 section in it. So just turn back to that and just want us to hear what happened because it's really important. So Israel has just gone and it made its own road through the desert, by the way, and God's given them food and water the whole way. So it's a miracle they got there by the route they took. It's just ridiculous. And they went through the sea. God has looked after these people. And so they get to the edge of the promised land, and we're going to look at just uh, chapter 14, the beginning of it. Um, the spies go in, they look at the land, and they come back and they give a report. And 
um, oh sorry, verse uh, 25 we'll look at. At the end of the 40 days, the spies are um, looking at the land. They returned from exploring the land and they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh. Um, there they reported to them in the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land you sent us to and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there, which is big people. They're terrified. Um, by the way, the descendants of Anak are nothing compared to the Egyptian army. We kind of beat them. Well, God kind of beat them, didn't he? Anyway, oh, we can't do it. These people are really big and scary. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and he says, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And the spread among the Israelites, a bad report about the land they explored. They're just trying to poison everybody's attitude to it. We can't trust God anymore. He's not going to let us in. It's absolutely unbelievable. After what they'd experienced in the last year and a half or so, they get to the edge of the promised land that God has promised he will take care of them inheriting. Hasn't he proven himself trustworthy and able to deliver yet? But Israel hardened their hearts and they gave up. Beginning of chapter 14. That night all the members of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to the land only to, to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite community um, assembly gathered there. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes, and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we pass through and explore is exceedingly good. That's what God said. It's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is God, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. It's not a coincidence my son's named Caleb, by the way. Um, this is the passage that we chose the name because of. Um, I don't know what challenges my son's generation will face, but I know that the first thing he needs is the ability to stand up, whatever the cost, and say, God, my Saviour is true, and I will trust him. That's what we should want for all our kids. And Caleb and Joshua were the only people to get into the land besides the next generation. They trusted God. And Israel wouldn't listen. The only reason those guys didn't get stoned to death is because God intervened. And he sent them out into the wilderness and they made that kind of route for the next 40 years. In my anger, I declared to them, you guys will never enter my rest. Your children that you were so worried about, I'll bring them in. But if you're going to rebel against me, if you're not going to continue on the journey, if you're not going to endure, you're not going to enter you burnt your ticket. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 3 and it tells us the application for us. It says in verse 16, it's page 406, verse 16 of chapter 3, it says, Who were those who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it the same people that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness over those 40 years? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who, were disobe- to those who disobeyed? 
So we see they were not able to enter. Why? Because of their unbelief. You're supposed to be shocked. It's a shocking event. If you've heard it too many times, you're not shocked. You're shocked again. The entire generation died in the wilderness because they rejected God. And the real example is supposed to make us wake up and listen. Um, back when I was at university, there was a workshop there, and like uh, I did a design degree, so you made prototypes and stuff, and there was a, a workshop there with machines and tools. Um, and the guy who looked after it had a great deal of trouble getting us to follow the safety rules. Um, you know, wear safety glasses for everything, basically. It was one of the rules, and that was the one that he tried to major on, um, and people didn't listen to him. So one day, he pulled a, a photocopy of the internet, a particular photo, um, and put the picture everywhere. Uh, the photo was of an eye with a nail sticking out of it. So the eye is open and there's just a nail, a large nail protruding out of it. Um, it says, wear safety glasses. Um, because I'm not messing around here. Real people have lost their eyesight doing what you're doing, not following the safety rules. Friends, this is not theoretical. Real people have given up on following God and have come to ruin. And we mustn't do the same. When I was in year 12, um, I went to a Bible study group, and there were six people in it, um, and I think only two of them, including me, are still Christians. Uh, this is not theoretical. We've got to continue in Christ. The stakes couldn't be higher. He's got salvation at the end of the journey, in the promised land, in God's kingdom. So we need to continue to get there. How are we going to do that? Have a look at verses 12 to 14. It kind of gives us some application. It tells us how to help each other on the journey. Uh, chapter 3, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original convictions firmly to the very end. You notice whose responsibility it is in verse 12? Just have a look at it. Whose responsibility is it to look out for Christians to make sure that they're not in danger of falling away? It doesn't say watch out for yourself. There's other bits of the Bible that say that, um, so that's true. Uh, it doesn't tell, say, pastors, watch out for the congregation that nobody falls away. Um, that's true as well, and we will be doing that. Um, but that's not what this part of the Bible says. Who is responsible for watching out for Christians? Well, Christians are responsible for looking after Christians. It's all of our responsibility to keep watch for each other as Christians. Look at what it says in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, Christians, watch out for each other. It's your personal responsibility to help each other get to the promised land. What are we supposed to watch out for? That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. Watch out for people around you developing sinful tendencies, starting to become addicted to sinful practices. Friends, there's no such thing as safe sin. No such thing. It's all dangerous. Um, small sins become big sins and they take over your life. Uh, that's how it works. And eventually they'll take over and they'll trip you up on the journey. Watch out for people struggling with unbelief or being deceived about alternatives. Often it's not even, it's, it's just crowding Jesus out of your timetable is the problem. Watch out for people crowding Jesus out of their timetable. They fill their lives up with so much stuff they have no time to hear the Bible today. Not listening to what God says today, trusting his promises again new, anew today as we journey to the promised land together. Friends, the biggest problem often isn't the, the big moment where somebody says, I'm giving up on Jesus. The biggest problem is the incremental steps they took to get there. And so it's a fact that people in this room will struggle with sin, they'll be tempted to turn away, they'll develop a love for sinful habits that they don't have now. 
Um, people here will be tempted to fill their lives with all sorts of things that mean they're not hearing God anymore, and you and I have to share responsibility in watching out for each other. That's what it says. How on earth are we going to do that? That sounds really hard. Yeah, it's really hard. Reality check, it's really hard. Um, I don't know hardly any churches that are very good at this. I know individual Christians that are quite good at this, but it's very hard. Um, it's hard because it involves having real relationships where you actually know each other personally. It's just a relationship Steve was talking about with his friend. Um, it takes the development of trust. It involves being willing to talk about Christian things and not just new sport and the weather. Nothing wrong with new sport and the weather. Talk about I want to talk about that, but it's not all we should talk about. How are you going with Jesus? Um, how are you growing? What are you struggling with? Well, we've actually given you a brochure that has questions in it for that. Open your brochure up for a sec. And have a look at Enduring. And all these questions are just designed to be used in normal conversations. So just choose. You meet up with a Christian. So Steve and I met the other day. And we asked the third question under Faithful, because it's where we were at. And we said, how would you say your apprenticeship to Jesus is going? And we talked about that for 10 minutes. I'm not going to tell you what we talked about, because that's what we talked about. I'll be able to tell you what I'm going to tell what he said, but it's up to him. Um, and we had a really good conversation. And then we got talking about other things. And it was great. And we encouraged each other. And we've been helping each other to continue as disciples of Jesus. Now come down to enduring. And it's got three questions there. First one, where are you weak and in danger of falling? That's the most confronting question in the whole brochure, I reckon. It's a real question. What are you struggling with in your life? How are you going with sin? What's most likely to kill you on the journey? Think about it now. Where are you weak and in danger of falling? Um, if anything in the last two seconds has come into your head, then it's a real danger for you. That thing is a real danger for you. And you need to find somebody to talk to about it. That's what the next one uh, says. Who knows you well enough to ask the question? Oh. <laughs> you mean people are going to ask me about Christian things? It's really personal and really confronting. It's really hard. It takes the development of t- uh, trust. It takes time and effort. You notice that? It takes time. So if you're new with this and you think, I couldn't tell anybody here how I'm going with Jesus right now. Okay, that's fine. Take some more time with this. Get to know people. But it takes effort. So get to know people. Because if we're ever going to be in a position to ask each other real questions, it involves developing relationships. Um, so if that's all the homework you get out of this is, my, what I have to do is get to know a few more people at church better, go out with them during the week. That's great. That's a really good forward step. But you notice there's a third question as well. So who knows you well enough to ask the question of you? Who's going to help you? The last one is, who are you going to help? Who are you strengthening to run the race to the end? We want two things from you. We want you to be helped by other Christians. We want you to be a helper of other Christians. And we want both of those for every single person. So we've heard we have responsibility to help each other. We've talked about that already. And that's just ordinary conversations. Um, I, I really struggled. To, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I was talking to Steve and I was saying, what was the big moment in this, this guy mentored you and helped you persevere in Jesus? What was the big moment in that? And it's kind of like, oh, he just sort of hung out with me for four years and just paid attention to me and prayed with me and just watched out for me. It's, it's not, not, nothing big. It doesn't have to be big dramatic scene. It's just ongoing, encouraging, talking about small things, chipping away conversations and how you're going with Jesus. So you need help. You also need to be willing to be helped. Um, and at least a few of the churches I've been part of, there's often been a person in the congregation or some people in the congregation um, who are very good at helping other people but are completely unwilling to be helped themselves. Um, um, often they reject the impression they've got it all together. We'll just wait for Zach to go because he's excited about something I didn't catch. 
there's often people who aren't willing to be helped by others. Um, it's really spiritually dangerous. It, it, it's the opposite of trusting in Jesus in the end, isn't it? Pride, self-sufficiency, I can take care of myself. I don't need to open up to anyone else. It's a really dangerous spiritual position to be in. So we want you to be a person willing to accept help from other people as well. Who's helping you um, follow Jesus along the race? So answer those two questions. Who am I helping? Who's helping me? That's what we're going to do for each other. Now, I know that most of um, most of our time, I want to finish by summarising chapter 4, uh, 1 to 11, because it's one of my favourite bits in the whole Bible. Because um, it talks about, we've been warned about what not to do. Let's hear about what we're supposed to do. Um, the journey didn't end there. Eventually, the people uh, got a new leader, Joshua, and Joshua entered the land of rest with them, led them into Canaan there. They conquered it all. Um, they conquered the city of Jerusalem. King David was, was king. And that's when he wrote Psalm 95 and said, make sure you enter God's rest. Which is really weird. <laughs> because all along, they've been, God's been saying, make sure you trust me, follow me, so you can enter the land of rest. And so here's what happens in chapter 4, um, 1 to 11. It basically says, here's the logic of how rest works. In the beginning, God created the whole world and he rested from his works. He enjoyed creation. He rested from his works. And then he keeps on saying to, to Israel, um, trust me and enter my rest. And we know that generation there, they failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief. But then a really strange thing happened because eventually Joshua led them into the promised land and King David was king of the land and it says God gave him rest from his enemies and rest in the land. And they're in the promised land and things are really, really good. And David writes a psalm and he says to people, today if you hear God's voice, don't rebel against God. Make sure you enter God's rest. We're in the land of rest. What are you talking about, David? There's something more going on. Remember, God created the world and rested from his works. He's got something bigger than the promised land going on. And so we come to Hebrews 4 and it says, even today, here in Oran Park, 24th of February 2013, or whatever the date is, I think I got it right. God's rest remains today to keep trusting in him. What on earth is this rest that it's not the promised land? The promised land's an advertising brochure. You've seen the signs. Go to the Oran Park Town website. I wish I had the picture up. But it basically just has, here's what it looks like now. Here's what it's going to look like in the future. It's advertising brochure. Look forward to it. Canaan was supposed to be an advertising brochure. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying a good life under God. God's rest is when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom forever and shares his satisfaction with all things with his people. Let me just say, I was once... This is, here's why it's my favourite part of the Bible, one of them. A big challenge for me at one point in my life was um, I was terrified of eternity. I thought eternity was a really, really scary thing. Um, I thought I would get bored. <laughs> It's essentially what I was scared of, I think, and I was very stressed about it. Um, and this part of the Bible helped me a great deal. Because I look at our society and we're so wealthy and we're so dissatisfied. And I go, you mean I have to put up with that for eternity? Is essentially where I was at, what I was thinking. Listen carefully at the end of this passage to the rest that God offers. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here's the wonderful bit. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Our destination is to share in the rest that satisfies God. Our destination is to share in God's rest that satisfies God. And if it's good enough for God to enjoy, then it's plenty good enough for me to enjoy. Eternity won't be long enough. 
There's a wonderful quote by a guy called J.R. Packer, and he says, Hearts in the course of a joyful experience on earth say, I don't ever want this to end, but it invariably does, and we get satisfied and the rest. But hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There can be no greater news than this. Verse 14. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. There's a story I've heard, I've told a lot of times, it sums this up so wonderfully. There's a man who goes for a job in the city, it's a big corporation. Um, the, the, the guy who's in charge of this corporation, whatever his position is, uh, what he often does is he kind of peppers up guys with drinks. That he's got aspiring for bigger things. He sort of chats with him and I laugh and all that sort of thing. Gets him off guard and he just fires the big question at him. Just in the middle of a conversation. Just in the middle of nowhere. Middle of a joke. Okay, big question. And so this, this Christian guy was in this situation and the boss just shot at him. What is your goal? And quick as a flash, the Christian guy responded, my goal is to get to heaven and to bring as many people with me as I can. And he's understood the meaning of life. He's understood what it means to endure and to help others endure with you. Let's pray with your church like that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus offers us a share in your rest that satisfies you. Uh, there's much to be uh, concerned or anxious about in this world um, that would detract from that race and tempt us to turn aside. Please help us by your spirit to continue trusting in Jesus. Please help us as a community of your people to help each other continue trusting in Jesus firm to that final day when it's going to be so glorious, more than we could possibly imagine. Please help us to be really good at this. Please help us to get to know each other and to be able to have real conversations about how we're going with Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.